you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. This, like many passages in the book of Revelation, has been contested in recent decades for interpretation. There are a variety of perspectives that exist. I actually think, probably grown accustomed to hearing me say this, that there's not as much complexity here as what some would make out as though there is, that there's actually a very simple and straightforward message communicated here in Revelation 17. Satan is without question a significant influence in the world in which we live. You need look no further than the end of your nose to observe the influence of Satan in this world. Not to mention what you might observe in the world around us. It seems as though we are watching societies, not to mention our own, spiraling downward, in some cases outright circling the drain. It is obvious, in, in fact, <laughs> quite obvious, that Satan is at work. He is the prince of the powers of darkness bearing significant influence in the world in which we live. That is not where the message of Revelation 17 ends, thankfully. In fact, there's a far more optimistic tone about the chapter itself, acknowledging that, yes, Satan wields his influence in this cruel world, but that ultimately and finally, he is on a short leash with a good and absolutely sovereign God. Revelation 17 continues this note of victory sung along in the book of Revelation in a variety of different ways. Signing victory not only to God, but to his subjects, to those who have entrusted themselves to the care and salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ by his blood and through his resurrection, we are more than conquerors. The warning of Revelation 17 is that we not regard too highly what we see with our eyes. For often what seems so apparent in the physical realm belies the reality of the truth in the spiritual realm. That though there may be painful and difficult, even greatly dark days, that there is subsequent, subsequent to the difficulties we experience here, a great victory that we enjoy in Jesus. Revelation 17, we'll read the entirety of this chapter. If you would, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Revelation 17, beginning in verse number one. The Bible says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment, judgments of the notorious prostitute who sits on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. So he carried me away in the spirit to a desert. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She had a gold cup in her hand filled with everything vile and with the impurities of her prostitution. On her forehead, a cryptic name was written, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the vile things of the earth. 
And I saw that the woman was drunk on the blood of the saints and on the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will tell you the secret meaning of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and will be present again. Here is the mind with wisdom. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. The beast that was and is not is himself an eighth king, yet he belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. Ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. He also said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The ten horns you saw and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his plan by having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until God's words are accomplished. And the woman you saw is the great city. It has an empire over the king's of the earth. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We have made frequent mention of this, and I think it bears repeating again this morning, that the book of Revelation speaks to the result of God's actions and activity from an earthly perspective and from a spiritual perspective. The first half of Revelation is focused on the perspective of the church, the earthly perspective. What does the action, the activity of God look like, feel like? What is that experience like? What does God's action result in from the perspective of the church? For the church, there is often suffering, there is anguish, there is some difficulty as the purpose and plan of God unfolds. There are hardships and there are challenges. There are even dark seasons of time in individuals' lives and dark seasons of times in various nations and among various people and among various local congregations. From the perspective of the church, there is hardship and difficulty, but the church overcomes by the power of the gospel. Individuals within the body of Christ, which is the church, overcome by the power of the gospel. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but we have, by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, been made alive in Christ Jesus. We overcome in the fullest sense of the word by faith in Jesus Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. No one, nothing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever take the gift of God's salvation away from the people of God. We overcome day by day the very presence and power of evil in this earthly realm by the message of the gospel. The weapon of warfare that Revelation pictures as being held in the hand of the church is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is received 
and the kingdom advances by the preaching of the gospel. Evil is overcome by our holding steadfast to the very simple yet powerful message that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. We simply will not succumb to the propaganda of our day, but will hold fast to the conviction that Christ and Christ alone is both Lord and Savior. His standard will be our standard. We will march with arms locked behind our faithful Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we overcome. That is the earthly perspective, which is the emphasis in the first half of Revelation. In the second half, there is a more spiritual emphasis, what I call a cosmic emphasis or cosmic focus. There are two realms in which we live. There is the material or the physical realm, which is obvious to us. This is the world in which we walk by sight. And then there is the spiritual realm, which is the world in which we walk by faith. Now, we are overcoming evil in the material or physical realm by the power of the gospel. The gospel has saved us. And by the preaching of the gospel, evil is being overcome in this world as the kingdom is received and the kingdom is advancing. But there has been secured for us, yet again by the gospel, a forever and final victory in the spiritual realm. Through the very action of the gospel. Not just the preaching of the gospel, not just memorializing the gospel, but the message of the gospel unfolding in human history. God clothing himself in flesh as Jesus comes in his incarnation. Jesus fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in his sinless perfection. Jesus bearing our sin as God's great sacrifice on a Roman cross and crucifixion. Jesus being raised from the dead on the third day sets loose the powers of heaven in war against the powers of hell. Michael and his archangels, on the authority of Jesus, justified by his sacrifice and the, and the glory of his resurrection, wage war against the powers of hell and secure the victory for us eternally. But that is not to say that there are not ongoing skirmishes in the spiritual realm, in which there is victory yet to be claimed by the people of God, yet again by holding fast to the message of the gospel and the bold declaration of the gospel. So, so far in Revelation, we've talked about the physical realm and the spiritual realm and how the gospel is the source of victory in both dimensions. One of the powerful things that Revelation 17 does for us it's to help us to see how those two dimensions interact one with another. There are times when it looks with eyes of sight as though God has assigned to us a losing strategy. It feels as though we are falling behind, as though we have in so many ways lost the fight. But what we see with eyes of sight belies the reality of the spiritual dimension. That God is for us and before us and the victory has been secured finally and forever. There is a, a spiritual realm in which God is greatly active. By the power of the gospel, God is greatly active. It's behind all that we see and experience in the physical realm, not always completely telling the truth of the spiritual reality. This will make more sense, I think, as we study along 
in Revelation 17. Go to verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. What we have in 17 and 18 and 19 is, is a, a closer look at the outcome of the seven bowl judgments. Those bowls of judgment were poured out. How, how does that judgment have direct bearing in the world? John's about to find out. The angel says, come, and I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who sits on many waters. Moms and dads, let me apologize beforehand for the many questions that you'll be asked and forced to answer with regards to the language of Revelation 17 around Sunday dinner. Here we have a notorious prostitute who sits on many waters. Now, we've read the chapter, so I'm going to spoil it before we get there in our study of the chapter itself. The notorious prostitute is Babylon. And there's a certain flexibility about the way we understand Babylon, about what Babylon symbolizes, but the direct symbolism is that of the city of, of Rome. Rome is the capital city of the Roman Empire. It is the heart of the Roman Empire and so much that is wrong with the world in the days of John and the writing of the book of Revelation. Babylon is the symbol of every institution that opposes the things of God. In this case, it's a political institution. It's a governing institution. It could be an economic institution. It could be a financial institution. It could even be an educational institution, but any institution in any era that opposes the will, the word, and the way of God might fall under this broad symbolism of Babylon. That's what the notorious prostitute stands for. She sits on many waters, which is symbolic of her rule over many people. In effect, the people of the world were under the authority of the great prostitute in the days of the writing of Revelation. Verse 2. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her. And those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. She has enticed the kings of the world into relationship with her. Kings of the earth have aligned themselves with the notorious prostitute who is Babylon. Which is to say so much of the civilized world has been joined together under the broader banner of the Roman Empire. They have been swooned, enticed, tempted, and tried by the wine of her sexual immorality. The idea of sexual immorality is drawn from the Old Testament imagery wherein Israel, in her paganism and idolatry, committed spiritual infidelity against God. And it's referred to again and again and again as adultery or sexual immorality. This notorious prostitute has enticed the kings of the earth with her sexual immorality, and they've become drunk on the wine of her spiritual adultery. In verse 3, the Bible says, So he carried me away in the spirit to a desert. Sort of a strange reference. But there's this mention earlier in the book of Revelation to the fact that the church is carried away into a desert or the wilderness in order to be protected for a season. It comes in an interesting place as well. It's back in chapter 12 when the lady of virtue, we identified as Mary or Israel as a people, gives birth to this child and the dragon is there poised to attack and consume this child. But in this 
twist of fate, the child that is born comes forth in great victory and wins, achieves, conquers, and overcomes evil by cutting the dragon down. It's this, it's this getting behind in the fourth quarter and this unexpected comeback in the end. The, the lady of virtue comes to be symbolic in Revelation 12 of all of the people of God, and, and she's carried away into the wilderness to be protected from the dragon for a season. Perhaps symbolically, John is being carried away to be protected from this notorious prostitute from Babylon. Or perhaps John is being removed from his circumstance in order to make clear, more vivid observations about the environment in which he lives. John is writing from a Roman context. Now, this is a little early in our application of, of Revelation 17, but I want to deal with a little bit the symbolism of Babylon and draw some direct application. Sometimes it's hard for us to see the environment in which we live for what it is because we are so close. The other day, one of my sons said, Mississippi is just not pretty. We're talking about different states and places. I said, son, it's because you live here. If you were from California and you visited Mississippi, you'd probably talk about how beautiful Mississippi is and how ugly it is in California. It's just because we're always here. You don't ask a fish what it feels like to be wet. We become, over time, numb to our environment. I want you to think about this Babylon concept and what it comes to symbolize. There are all sorts of efforts in Revelation 17 to make clear and very precise identification of who Babylon is, specifically who the seven kings are, who the ten kings that form this confederacy of support for the notorious prostitute, who they are. And usually when I see someone trying to draw those kinds of precise connections from the daily news, I, I just move away from that because it's foolishness. That's not the way revelation is intended to function. But there is flexibility about the imagery of Babylon and the seven kings and the ten kings in our passage that affords us to say, uh, the ability to say about any institution in any era at any time and in any place that any institution that opposes the things of God is Babylon. We might say, looking down through human history, that there have been a variety of Babylons. From Israel's past, Egypt is something of the first Babylon. Later, the Assyrian, the Assyrian people become something of a Babylon. Nineveh becomes something of a Babylon at a certain interval in Israel's history. Babylon itself, at a point in Israel's history, becomes something of a Babylon. The book of Revelation itself identifies the city of Sodom from the Old Testament as something of a Babylon. It even grants the license that we identify the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, as a Babylon for her participation in the crucifixion of Jesus. Any city, any location, any institution that opposes the things of God might be identified in this way. So usually when I see someone say something like, you know, you got China and Russia over here, they're doing all this. I bet today, listen, I, I bet the chart drawing eschatologists, people, end times people, prophets, I bet Jack Van Impey is going nuts today. You got China and Russia doing all these things over here. And that is not what Revelation is doing. That is not what Revelation is doing. However, we can say China is Babylon. We can say 
Russia is Babylon. We can say that North Korea is Babylon. As a matter of fact, if we join John in removing ourselves from our immediate environment and begin to make observations about the world in which we live, we might say, in so much as this nation decides to oppose the will, the way, and the word of God, America is Babylon. Listen, I, I love this country. Let me just say that. I love this country. O only in America do we enjoy the kind of social and economic mobility we enjoy. I mean, it's, you, you, you are not bound to live in the condition into which you were born in America. And that is unique to us. It is an amazing, there's no better place on earth in my estimation. But I look around sometimes with such frustration at the foolish decisions that we make. And I wonder if we might not be suitably placed in that category of peoples symbolized by Babylon. I read more from antiquity than I do of modern readers. Dead writers won't disappoint you. I'm so, sort of programmed to read thinking from outside of a cultural context. And I wonder if the Lord tarries what people looking back through history might think of our nation 2,000 years from now. We seem hell-bent as a people on making the decisions that can only culminate in utter destruction and proud of making those decisions. In fact, pride has become an entire lifestyle, a category wherein we celebrate abomination and, and debauchery. We fly flags and celebrate such evil acts of immorality, detrimental, which can only yield an outcome of utter destruction. Any institution, any city, any country, educational, financial, it makes no difference. Any institution that sets itself up in opposition to the things of God is Babylon, is the notorious prostitute that seduces the nations of this world with the wine of her immorality. Carried me away into a, in the spirit to a desert. John says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. We'll come back to the seven heads and ten horns. For now, note that this notorious prostitute is riding a scarlet beast. We've seen the beast imagery before. It seems to be most closely identified with Satan or the dragon here. Only the dragon is described as scarlet in the book of Revelation. The imagery here is to say to us, it is to indicate for us that this notorious prostitute is operating under the power and the influence of Satan. She is compelled to do what she does by the very powers of hell. She's covered with blasphemous names, which is a reference to the war of words imagery we've made frequent reference to along the way. The beast itself has seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She had a cup in her hand, a gold cup filled with everything vile and with the impurities of her prostitution. And I didn't realize until this week, I always knew that in Roman culture there were certain colors, certain garb associated with certain classes, but I didn't know until this week that that was by, the, by enforcement of law. Only a Roman citizen could wear a toga, only a Roman citizen. Only a certain almost aristocratic class could wear the color red, and only the imperial class could wear the color purple within the Roman. Everything about the way this woman is pictured suggests to us that she enjoys all the power, the prominence, the prestige, the influence of a per person of, of great status, of great position. 
Verse 5, the Bible says on her forehead a cryptic name was written, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the vile things of the earth. This is the way people are identified in Revelation. Revelation doesn't say, here's a character, and this is their identity. That's no fun, right? But in a very apocalyptic way, it says, here's the character, and this is what they have on their forehead. It's more vivid, draws on the imagination more powerfully. This was the case with the mark of the beast. They have this mark that identifies who they are. They identify with the beast. This is true of the sealed saints who bear on their foreheads the mark, the seal of Jesus Christ. And this is true of the notorious prostitute who wears on her head, who bears on her head this title, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the vile things of the earth. Verse 6, John says, I saw that the woman was drunk on the blood of the saints and on the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. This woman thrives on opposing the people and the things of God. She is drunk and continues to satisfy her hellish thirst on the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. John makes it clear that Babylon enjoys great political influence as well as great spiritual influence. This is not just political power that she wields, but in an effort to draw affection to the beast, she exerts great spiritual influence as well. Again, there's a flexibility about this. There seems a Babylon in every era, Babylon in every age. We could look back through Western history and identify a handful right off the top of our head. We talk about Nazi Germany as a Babylon in time past. And all sorts of encounters that have been experienced in the West along the way that, that deserve the language, the title, the imagery of, of Babylon. It's clear that this woman is operating, that this city, that this institution is operating under the influence of Satan. And as we said in our introduction, it's apparent enough that this kind of influence still exists in the world today. But that is not where Revelation 17 ends. Verse 7, the Bible says, The angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will tell you the secret meaning of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. Now, I mentioned that interpreting Revelation is sort of a contested, Revelation 17 is sort of a contested business, right? Now, what's interesting to me is that John says, I'm going to give you the cheat code. I'm going to tell you the answers to the test. I'm going to tell you how to interpret the verses that you've just read. Where there's an element of mystery, I'm going to clear all that up. And what's happened in the past 200 years of interpreting the book of Revelation is that it's been clouded by all sorts of nonsense. There are going to be some who struggle this morning to find what they're looking for in Revelation 17. And the reason you're going to struggle to find what you're looking for is because it is not in there. And you need to be careful that you're not looking for that. What we've done in the last 200 years, in America at least, in the West for the most part, is that we've, we've taken what was intended by John to be rather simple, and we've complicated it in some significant ways. So what I want to say to you is this. This is a really simple, straightforward message in the verses that follow after that are intended to be a balm to the soul of those who are subject to wicked empires, to notorious prostitutes, and to institutions that have set themselves up to oppose the things and the people of God. A reminder to us that there is victory in Jesus. No more and no less. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. If you're a note taker, 
you might benefit from underlining the words and go to destruction. This is another reference to Satan's effort at at creating a parody of the message of the gospel wherein Jesus dies, is buried, and and raised again. There's this myth, this legend in the background of Revelation. Nero, who committed suicide in the 60s, is said to have snuck away, to have faked his death. And there's something, something of an expectation by legend that one day he may return with the armies of the east. For the first time in Rome's history, there's a bit of a fear that there might actually be an invading army that, that we would be overwhelmed by. And perhaps Nero would be their leader in this legend or this mythology. Satan is seeking to mimic, to copy what God has done in reality through Jesus. Understand that when we talk about the message of the gospel, we're talking in real historic terms. There was a moment in time in human history when God came down from heaven, clothed himself in flesh, lived without sin, and died as a sacrifice for our sin on the cross. Jesus literally, physically died on the cross. They took his body down and they buried him just the way anyone else would have been buried. The blood that once flowed in his veins cooled, was cold, and finally congealed. The heart that once beat in his breast ceased to beat. The lungs that once breathed, the air of life ceased to breathe. But on the third day, at the break of dawn, the cold and congealed blood in his veins began to move again. And his chest began to rise and fall again. And his heart began to beat again. And his body, once stiffened in death, began to move again. Jesus was raised from the dead. This great act Satan seeks to mimic, to counterfeit, a way to to swoon the people of the earth who know not the Savior of the world. What's critical to observe in verse verse 8 is that this beast is about to go to destruction. The verse continues, Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and will be present again. They will be fooled by this sleight of hand seems to be the indication. Verse 9, here is the mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. I've heard it said this way. I think this is a good way of illustrating this principle. New York is, is the Big Apple. And Chicago is the windy city. Las Vegas is sin city. And Rome is the city of seven hills. It is known for that. Here, the seven heads are representative of the seven hills, which are in Rome. But there's an added layer of symbolism in verse 10. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. The beast that was and is not is himself an eighth king, yet he belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. You might mark that again. Verse 12, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So we have two groups of kings. You have the double imagery of the seven heads of the beast, which are representative of the seven hills of Rome, as well as seven kings. And then you have 
10 kings who have not yet received power, but who will. And they have aligned themselves with the notorious prostitute in this confederacy of nations for one purpose, drawing praise and glory to the beast and to the dragon. Seven and ten. I would remind you that symbolically throughout the book of Revelation, the numbers seven and ten are representative of fullness or completion. They can stand for all. So you can sort of get bogged down in the muck and mire of trying to identify who these seven kings and ten kings are, which is the way most contemporary preaching of Revelation 17 goes. But I'm saying to you this morning that the function of Revelation 17 is not that we would identify seven kings in Rome's history and ten kings of a confederacy to come at some point in human history. The symbolic imagery here is to say that all of the kings in the history of the Roman Empire and all other kings who set themselves up in opposition to the way, the will, and the word of God will succumb to the power of God ultimately and finally in the end. That's the symbolic imagery of Revelation 17. You begin to read in this, and you'll find efforts at trying to identify the seven emperors in Rome's history. And you, you can do that and play with that a little bit. And I could have brought that to you this morning, but I didn't think you cared, nor did I have interest in really doing that. The point is, all of the emperors of Rome and all of the kings of the earth are under the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. That is the point of the passage. Now, those ten kings align themselves with the beast. They align themselves with this notorious prostitute. Verse 13 says, these have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the lamb. Now, stop. Don't read further yet. These will make war with the lamb. Now, listen, we, we have been indoctrinated. It has been instilled in us to know that there is victory in Jesus. Let me tell you something. Roman emperors conquer, and they always win. Now, and I got to think, I'm reading through this passage, and I'm a first century Christian, and I'm already intimidated at the notion of being in opposition to an emperor who always wins. An emperor who always wins. And now I learn that there's a confederacy of 10 other nations who have aligned themselves with this notorious prostitute. I don't have a chance. Roman emperors conquer. So much of the propaganda of the Roman Empire was to highlight, to emphasize the conquering power of Roman emperors. They were regarded as deities. They were gods. And the propaganda is reinforced by the reality that every time they go out to battle, they come back victorious. These gather together. This confederacy of nations under the authority of the notorious prostitute make war against the lamb. Now let's read the rest. But the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And no, no Roman emperor, I don't care what his record is, no confederacy of nations, I don't care how powerful they are, stand a chance in the face of our King Jesus Christ. That's the message. Jesus wins again. His power subverts any petty authority these kings think they might enjoy. 
all of the nation, all of the emperors of Rome, all of the kings of every earthly nation, it sets itself up in opposition to the things of God, will succumb to the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Now listen, in, this, in the physical realm, looks like at times we're losing, feels like at times we're losing. Some of you find yourself at the present hour in opposition or opposed by various segments of a system that does not serve the interest of God or his people. And it's insurmountable. From your perspective, it's a hopeless endeavor. There's, there's, there's no recourse that you have. There is nothing that you can do to rectify your situation, a situation wholly thrust upon you by a system that does not serve the God of the Bible. We reflect this in conversation. How many times have I said in my life, if I could just get a call from Washington, D.C. for 10 minutes, I could fix all of their problems in a very, very short conversation. But the phone doesn't ring. And I got news for you, it ain't going to ring. Because they don't care any more about what I think than they care about what you think. There are going to be times in your life when it feels as though you are up against a system that is, from your perspective, absolutely insurmountable. And in the physical realm, the reality for us is the system is insurmountable. Now, pluck yourself out of that situation, an American context where we live with incredible freedom and great comfort. And put your feet down in another setting where the institution itself is so overtly opposed to the things of God that they have made it their mission to eliminate the people of God, to persecute at every turn. Even the prospect of martyrdom is a reality for those who possess faith in Jesus Christ. Feel for a moment the hopelessness of first century Christians in Asia Minor who've witnessed their friends and themselves, their, their wives and their children abused and neglected, mistreated, and even murdered in certain instances for their faith in Jesus with no recourse, with no way to strike back. What would you do? Here they're encouraged and refreshed that what you see with your eyes lies the spiritual reality of the victory that we have in Jesus. This is why God calls us to faith and not to sight. Sometimes things just don't add up. Sometimes we don't have the ability to see the end from the beginning. But we can know and we can rest with hope and assurance that by the power of the gospel, for us, there is always a brighter tomorrow. Are you glad for that? Are you, you ought to be really refreshed and encouraged by that reality. That one day, evil systems, institutions, the notorious prostitutes that oppose you in your efforts to be faithful to serving Jesus will succumb to his final lordship and authority. And by the resurrection, he'll make all things right. Dear brothers, this is an invitation to perseverance. I want to show you what John does in the last sentence of verse number 14. Those with him are called chosen and faithful. He uses here the language assigned to the church. Now, he doesn't use so much the language assigned to the church after their death. He uses the language assigned to the church in Revelation 2 and 3, living and breathing in mortal bodies. 
Now, what he's done in doing that, in using church language to speak of those who join with Jesus in this great end times conquest, is to bring a very futuristic passage back into our present situation. To say to us that we don't have to wait for the last day to enjoy the victory that Jesus has secured for us. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? That we, even in this hopeless scenario and what seems from this earthly perspective to, to be so dreadful, so burdensome, so heavy, this insurmountable obstacle, we can, we can live and move and have our existence from a position of victory, actively participating in Christ overcoming evil by the preaching of the message of the gospel, which is key to overcoming evil. We can usher in the reception of the kingdom. We can rescue from darkness into light those who are perishing. We can, by the preaching of the gospel, conquer evil. We can enjoy the full and final victory that is to come, even in the here and now. We're not waiting to be victorious, church. We are victors in Christ. Now, my favorite part of the passage is the last part. Verse 15, he also said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. She rules over many people. The ten horns you saw and the beast will hate the prostitute. This is, a, this is a turn. The ten horns you saw, the kings of the world, all of the kings of the world who oppose the things of God, they will, they will hate the prostitute. And they will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. He's prophesying here the destruction of the Roman Empire. Those nations that formed a confederacy effectively turn against the great prostitute. They turn against the city of Rome. They turn against the empire. They're only along for the ride in so much as they share the purpose, the singular purpose of, of worshiping the beast, giving their authority and power to the beast. This is a great revolt. This is a significant moment in human history. But look at verse 17. It tells us why. We get the theological answer as to why those 10 kings revolt against the notorious prostitute. For God, listen, this is so good. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his plan by having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until God's words are accomplished. Sometimes I hear Christian folk talk, and here's what we think. We think that Jesus is the Lord over the lives of believers. And unbelievers, they're just out there doing their stuff, right? We think that Jesus is the Lord over Christian kings and Christian presidents and Christian prime ministers and Christian senators and Christian representatives. No, no, no. Oh, he is the Lord of Christian people, but he's the Lord of all the earth. And those who so defiantly shake their face, their, their fist in the face of God are just as much under the absolute sovereignty of God as those of us who have pledged our allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone. And even the sinister decisions they make, the wicked choices they make, the wicked directions they choose to go are under the direct sovereignty of God, ultimately Concluding in, having the effect of serving the interests of God's people and drawing glory and honor and praise to his name. They're pawns. 
God is using them to bring to pass his plan until the promises of God's word is brought to completion. This is incredible. In the same way that God ordered and orchestrated the political leaders of Jesus' day to bring about his judgment and execution by crucifixion, so too God has ordered and orchestrated the events of our life, even those that bring about pain and anguish, in order that the experiences of the church might be patterned after the experiences of our Savior, and that both might result in the salvation of many peoples, tribes, and languages. Next time you're watching the news, or you're reading something in your social media feed, and it's, instead of this sense of outrage, that I want to do something to fix it, and it's beyond my ability to do it. I mean, you could just see how wrong-headed some decisions are, and you're just thinking, if I could just, if I could just get that call, I could, if I could get 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue on the phone for 10 minutes, I'm telling you, it would be a world-changing conversation. The phone doesn't ring. In, instead of allowing yourself to just grow frustrated and angry and bitter and jaded, let your sanctified imagination roam free. And wonder if God would permit such foolishness and debauchery to abound. What great glory he has for himself. What good work for his people on the other side. This is a Genesis 50-20 moment in Revelation 17. Do you know the verse? In Genesis 50 and 20. Sons of Jacob are brought before their brother Joseph. They threw him into a pit. They sold him into slavery. He was a servant accused of a sex assault, thrown into prison. Eventually, he rises to the position of prime minister in Egypt. When Jacob dies, when their father dies, the brothers just figure that Joseph will have them all killed now. Daddy's gone. He'll take us out. And they come before Joseph to plead their case, to beg for mercy. And Joseph says something that is just, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, brothers, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. That is just an incredible verse. Now, I look around at, at our society circling the drain, the debauched decision-making that is so characteristic of our day. And I wonder if God would permit for this season such great immorality. What glory for his name. What good for his people might he have on the other side? Instead of growing frustrated and bitter and jaded, let your sanctified imaginations run wild and dream about what God might do against the black backdrop of great immorality. The nations rage and the people plot vain things, but God always wins in the end. He set it up such, orchestrating and ordering every moment of our life to serve our interest in his great glory. The battle lines have been drawn. The enemies of God are in battle array. God, his son Jesus, with the saints of God at his side and at his back, stand against them. And in the tender mercy of God, God still affords, listen, God still affords that an enemy combatant, realizing that now there's no turning back, 
And in light of the great authority of the one who wields the sword of judgment, there is most assuredly no moving forward. Might come, surrender their sword, and join the family of God. Dear brothers, that's mercy. That's mercy. That's who we are apart from Christ. Enemies of God. Hell-bound haters of God. That's who we are apart from Christ. And in spite of our great evil, in spite of our great sin, all we need to do this morning to find a place in the family of God is to lay down the sword of our defiance and our disobedience and reckon with the lordship of Jesus over our life and every life. To surrender to the kingship of Jesus as Lord of every Lord and King of every King. Satan has his influence in the world. There's no mistaking that. Some of us have been battered and bruised even in recent days by the influence of Satan in this world. But make no mistake, Satan is on a short leash with a sovereign God who always does what is right and who is always at work in order to serve the interests and the needs of his people. Aren't you glad for that? There, there will no doubt, room like this, there'll, there'll be some people in this room who will make the decision either consciously or subconsciously to hold fast to the sword of defiance and disobedience. And you believe yourself to be in active rebellion. You've convinced yourself that you are the Lord of your life and you're only fooling yourself. The nations rage and the people plot vain things. But God always wins. Why, why don't you surrender your sword today and be a part of the family of God? Join in and enjoy the victory that has been secured for us by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is a good, merciful, and benevolent God. He welcomes those who come. In fact, he beckons that we would come. The promise of the gospel is to you and to your children and to your children's children and to many who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. You need only repent of your sin and come surrender your sword and yield to the authority of Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, move among us. Refresh the hearts of the saints as to your sovereign authority over all the earth. I, I pray that you would encourage those who find themselves opposed by systems and institutions that, that fear not the God of heaven and who have no interest in serving the benefit of his people, and drawing glory to his name. Encourage them at the victory that is ours, the victory that is finalized, secured, forever sealed by the resurrection of Jesus. God, I, I pray for those who are here, who again, either consciously or subconsciously would shake their fist in the face of God, insisting on continuing on in their evil ways. God, break their heart. Help them to see the disastrous outcome that awaits. Help them by the power of your spirit that they might yield to your sovereign authority. Beckon that they come ways that far exceed any invitation that I or any other might give. By the work of your spirit, call irresistibly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.